I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. Today, I speak with Dr. David Naylor, Professor of Medicine and President Emeritus at the University of Toronto. Previously, Dr. Naylor served as President Dean of Medicine at U of T. He was the founding director of clinical epidemiology at Sunnybrook Health Science Center and CEO of the Institute for Clinical Evaluated Sciences. In 2003, he chaired Canada's National Advisory Committee on SARS and Public Health. Dr. Naylor is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, and an officer of the Order of Canada. In 2016, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. Well, thank you so much, David, for being with me today. So let's, so let's start with the here and now. How would you assess Canada's response so far? Where are Canada's opportunities for improvement as we stare down uh, COVID-19? But I say we've done pretty well, particularly when you look at our numbers compared to various other countries in Europe or even our great neighbor to the south. There's areas that people will criticize in hindsight. You know, I could enumerate them. Uh, you know, one that I, I know uh, troubles many people is whether we were fast enough to protect uh, our nursing home residents and staff. Uh, there will be a lot of argument about timing of uh, the response to the snowbirds, uh, whether or not we should have closed borders faster, and so on. Uh, what I've said basically to people who are critical is that overall, uh, we appear to be reasonably well positioned. Uh, the surge uh, still is going to wash over our hospitals and intensive care units, but the size of it appears to be a little less than many of us had feared. I'm going to touch what as I say that. In the next couple of weeks, we'll tell the tale. And and above all, when when people are starting to look back, I've grown a bit and say it's a very Canadian thing to do. Right now, we're in a fight on two fronts. Frontline healthcare workers, hospitals, dealing with many critically ill COVID patients. And of course, we have to maintain all of the physical distancing measures and our public health responses of testing and tracing. So let's not at this point when we need to look forward and keep uh, everything in gear on both fronts, let's not start looking backwards and being too critical. Let's get on with it. Yes, and a, and a really remarkably high degree level of cooperation between uh, federal and between uh, and with provincial governments. I think people really take comfort in that. We're the country that puts the fun and dysfunctional when it comes to federations. And we've managed to overcome a lot of the tensions that had arisen, a lot of the partisanship. Uh, it's a wonderful moment to see the premiers, the prime minister, cabinet ministers all connecting to get on with the job of uh, protecting the health of Canadians. And I, I think it's very encouraging. Will it last? You know, those of us who have been through SARS and other outbreaks kept hearing about the new normal that would emerge. And uh, unfortunately, the the inertia in many of our arrangements, economic, social, political, is pretty strong. Uh, but I do hope that out of this shared experience, some positive changes will come, including a federation where people work a little better together, not least on the health front. So I think, you know, one of the areas where people have some questions around approach um, relates to testing. I think people look to, you know, South Korea and Singapore and say, hey, they're, do they're doing a great job, Germany, and they're testing a lot of people, probably higher rates than, than we are, at least in 
some of our provinces. Dr. Tam has described the Canadian approach as strategic. Can you help listeners understand that a little bit more? Or, or what's your take on, on the level of testing that's happening today? So there's a dilemma of sorts here in that we've been short on test reagents and short on swabs at times. And uh, on some level, I think we've turned a necessity into a virtue, uh, um, which you know, may be palatable to some extent, but really it would have been nicer to have all those reagents and swabs and all the rapid processing of all the test results early on. Particularly now with faster test kits, I hope we can pick up the pace. You know, the rationale for being strategic is that uh, obviously um, some individuals are going to have very mild COVID as a clinical condition, some may be almost asymptomatic. And so the argument is that they may be less infective. And if they are already isolated, if we're following physical distancing, since they are less infective, since they are already isolated, let's not expend limited amounts of time, energy, and, and testing material on them, and instead focus on those who appear to be more symptomatic, who we absolutely want to confirm as having COVID and uh, put, uh, if necessary, hospital resources into their care. I understand all of that. I see the logic, as I said. But, you know, in a better universe, what you would have is an, an enormous army of people doing contact tracing which means that you're going to be testing all the individuals who in any way were in the social network of those who turn up with even mild symptoms to try to get ahead of the community spread of the virus and contain overall the size of the outbreak. It's arguable that we're already at a point where there's enough community spread and we've had long enough physical distancing, so the marginal yields of that are less. Nonetheless, I can tell you, when this wave breaks, when things recede, when perhaps warm weather helps us, there's no guarantee there, uh, we will have to make sure that we have really aggressive testing and tracing. It'll be a whack-a-mole game, Jody, where every flare-up has to be knocked back down with really aggressive testing and tracing. And that will be part of the way that we nudge our way out of the current you know, restrictions that are really choking the economy choking civil society, changing all of our lives in ways that I think no one enjoys very much. So uh, testing and tracing is going to be part of the answer no matter what stage of this epidemic we're at. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way before. You know, uh, our testing and tracing abilities um, are going to remain important throughout the entire uh full life cycle of, of this virus, at least in, until we, we can see a vaccine in our future. Yeah, it'll be a vaccine or it'll be a level of background immunity that really slows the spread. And here, you know, some of the models predict that we have to get to a certain level of background immunity, what they call herd immunity, where we're protected overall. And most, most of that is guesswork, quite frankly. Um, no one knows what the best level of herd immunity is. We can start at the beginning of an outbreak using what we see as the R-naught, the exponent that describes the virus and its speed of spread, you know, a geometric growth. But as background immunity builds, it's like dampening kindling in a fire. And it 
doesn't dry out as the fire burns. It's there damp. All those people who have had the virus in some form and are immune to it are going to break some of those chains, the networks of spread that are so integral to the propagation and rapid growth of an epidemic. So as background immunity has grown, that dampening effect is important. One of the adverse effects of physical distancing, paradoxically, is that well, it avoids the surge on the hospitals. It avoids the tremendous rise in intensive care loads and the deaths that we see perhaps in some of our European uh, uh, friends uh, where, you know, certainly Italy and Spain have been so badly hit, it's very painful to watch. But that physical distancing effect certainly is going to reduce the rate of background immunity because we don't have as much interaction. What that means is we need to understand the background immunity and measure it and be very careful, measured and strategic about how we back out of the current physical distancing because there may still be a lot of people who are vulnerable to the virus. And we have to think this through as a big chess game. As I said, part of it is the whack-a-mole where you like the old county fair game, you're bashing down each of the moles that pops up off the, the plate on the machine. And each of these pop-ups, each of these flares of the epidemic will have to be hit hard with testing and tracing. Ideally, by then, we'll have some drugs that will make it easier to manage the clinical caseload that arises with COVID and will reduce the morbidity and, of course, the mortality. But we also need to be smart about who we put in public-facing jobs, because think about it, if you're you know, in a public-facing role, even some of our brave citizens who are there doing work in grocery stores right now uh, are in some level in, in public-facing jobs where they're at risk. So you might think in a different world, you would test your cashiers to see who is immune, what is their immune status. And others might work off hours or in back office roles. Your public-facing workers would be those who are immune. And that's especially the case when we think about healthcare workers who are very much in harm's way during an outbreak like this, police, firefighters, and so on. So there, there are many phases here to navigating our way out of and through uh, an epidemic like this, including navigating our way out of the lockdown phase that we're in right now. So that is a level of uh, orchestra conducting that we really haven't seen in our society before. Um, you know, and in fact, we're kind of coming off this wave of, you know, frictionless services and swim laning things and, uh, you know, trying to make everything so user-friendly, um, which is great, except it sounds like we're going to have to really switch gears and really become quite proficient at uh, managing quite a few different kinds of data points if we're going to get out of this phase of physical distancing. Um, I mean, that's that's very interesting to me. I, I, I think that's going to be, it, it will for sure be challenging on a, on a number of fronts. I, I agree completely. It's, it's going to be, I think, unprecedented because first, um, you know, th this, is a, this is a very unusual outbreak, the largest in scale and already in toll since Spanish flu. Fortunately, nothing like the death toll of Spanish flu. And I hope when 
it's all over. It will be nowhere close to that. Uh, but, you know, a, a very serious worldwide threat to health that has you know, locked down multiple uh, economies all over the planet and much larger than SARS, the first SARS outbreak you know, with COVID-1. This is COVID-2. So we are, are in uncharted territories, um, you know, not only in, in respect to the physical distancing measures and uh, how far and hard they've gone, but also in, in the fact that we have to think through how to pull them back strategically. And it's, it's a, a very real challenge. Let me give you an example, Jody, of how this might work. We know, for example, that, well, infants can get serious disease, really from the toddlers on through adolescence. This appears to be a really minimal clinical condition. And you know, we see similar things to a lesser extent with flu, which tends to spare the young. Not that they don't get it, but they become immune with very mild uh, symptoms. And very similar, it seems, with uh, SARS-CoV-2. And so you would say, well, maybe we should restart schools. It would make sense because the population is really not at risk of students. But then the question becomes, what about the teachers and teaching assistants? the janitors and others, all those who work in schools. We'd have to think about whether and they're immune or not. And part of that also means we need to study vertical transmission from children to adults. We're still getting a handle on that. We don't know how much it occurs. In general, people with milder disease appear to be less contagious. It's not just that they cough less and don't sneeze in your face and do all those things you, we all worry about. But they seem to have a lower viral load to, to spread around. So little kids shouldn't be very infectious, but we're not sure. And of course, when those little kids are at school, and if they do happen to be a kid who didn't previously get exposed, and they get a mild case of COVID-19 and they bring it home to grandma or grandpa, that may be a tragedy waiting to happen. So there's a lot to be thought through in terms of serology testing, blood testing for immunity, as well as how we restart every sector of the economy. It's going to be a giant chess game where we're doing continuous research worldwide, sharing knowledge and navigating together a way out of this lockdown and back to some form of normalcy while trying to minimize the toll the virus takes in terms of health and death. Do we have the data platforms to really manage this finely tuned of a transition? No, in a word. Um, it's a brilliant question and the answer is no. Um, I think every province uh, is working hard to link data systems in unprecedented ways. I think that, you know, some of the data that we're going to have to put together uh, will involve you know, linking social and employment and health data in ways that we probably would not be as comfortable with if it were not this type of outbreak. You know, these are sort of emergency public health measures that we need, and I'm not sure all of them will continue. One thing that I do think is happening that I hope will continue is we're finding smarter ways to get data aggregated and to protect privacy. And I think that that will continue in future using forms of data trusts and data lakes that will let us navigate a better health system or healthcare system independent of whether there's an outbreak or not. 
but some of that sharing is certainly happening from one province to the next and within provinces. Um, but boy, linking to the to civil society data, thinking about location and movement, things that we take very seriously, all of us from a privacy standpoint, all of that is going to have to be thought through in different ways uh, over the next six months or so as we navigate out of this. So there, there's a there's a tremendous architectural challenge to getting data organized properly for this purpose. And there's a tremendous conceptual challenge in making sure we do it in ways that allows reasonable protection of privacy, protects against you know identities being revealed inadvertently, gives many citizens control of their own data in a useful way. So it's it's a it's pardon the tired term, a paradigm shift in how we think about not only health data, but the relationship of health data to other data. It's not likely to be sustained, but I sure hope some of the changes in the way we handle health data will be sustained as a long-term benefit, a long-term learning uh, from the COVID epidemic. Yeah, very, very important point. I mean, and from my, you know, sort of non-clinical brain, you know, I, I've been thinking about, well, if, if you know, antibodies um uh, that have been produced from, you know, that are resting inside people who who have had COVID nineteen uh, and are recovering and recovered, become part of a therapeutic strategy. We have to be able to know who who has had it, and and I understand that there's there's some time frames there. So so that 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 I that ability to have a key where where you can look at the data in context if you need to would be yeah. so important. Yeah, so it'll be a very interesting world, and uh, as I said, we're fortunate to have people who are way out there and thinking about this beyond anything I could have imagined years ago when we were setting up the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. It's, it's a new world with these very smart thinkers on data issues that I think is may help us to find a way to navigate that, that realm of privacy, access, wise use, necessary use in a much more subtle and, and uh, appropriate way than has been in the past when we just focused on you know, what is almost the mythology of the identification. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you you were mentioning in one of your earlier comments, and I just wanted to pick up on it, you know, that there's a, an inertia that sometimes, you know, follows uh, crises like these where um, governments um, just lose the momentum uh, behind implementing the learnings um, gleaned from the crisis. And so I wanted to ask you, you've had such a, an interesting career and you've been, um, you've been charged with reflecting uh, on, on so many important moments. What, what, what are your thoughts or insights about what can we do as Canadian citizens to, to try and hold our attention? What kind of alliance alliances do we need to build to to ensure that that you know when we you know get to the other side of this that we implement all of our lessons learned Jody, I, another great question I, I think we're going to have to first of all take very careful stock of what's happened here a lot of very good things have happened there have been some missteps but as i said uh you know, the, the best time to look back is after we're, we've navigated our way to a, a successful conclusion of this battle. And I think there's going to be lessons learned on so many fronts. 
There'll be lessons learned about health data, uh, linkage of laboratory and, and health data, linking health data to other data sources. There'll be lessons learned about how we might mitigate physical distancing in future through different strategies. There'll be lessons learned, I hope, about the fact that these measures that have been imposed are enormously differential in their impact. Someone who has a salary, and particularly good salary, who can work from home, may be bored, but someone who is on the margins with casual work or gig worker of some type, someone who is a very low income earner, someone who doesn't have a lot of savings, someone who lives in a crowded space where distancing is difficult, um, all the people who are relatively less well off uh, or who have jobs that are precarious or low incomes uh, that you know can be snatched away by for whatever reason, all those individuals are going to be badly hit on multiple levels. And we know that the socioeconomic determinants of health are so important. So one lesson I hope we learn is how to do this better the next time so it doesn't bear differentially on people. But above all, that it becomes a reminder of the fact that a whole bunch of people go into an epidemic like this with more chronic diseases, more vulnerabilities because of where they live, how they live, their educational and income levels, and they're the ones who are often hardest hit. We're seeing that so clearly in the U.S. with African Americans. Um, our universal healthcare system insulates us from some of the worst of that, but we should be under no illusions about the relationship between health and well-being on the one hand and destitution and despair on the other. And uh, I think uh, an outbreak like this is a reminder that we're all in this together. We need to be a lot more attentive to the social determinants of health, not only during an outbreak, but afterwards. Absolutely. I could not agree more on the social determinants of health. It is one of those things that uh, it's one of those political nuts that's sometimes uh, hard to crack. But uh, but there's a lot of good organizations that uh, that are looking to partner with the government and help them uh, all the levels of government uh, and help them. Uh, really see the investment opportunity that that sits with with the social determinants of health. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, Bill Gates and others um, are suggesting that our next great investment opportunity is in scaling the manufacture of vaccines and even to the point of investing in manufacturing capacity of vaccines that may prove to be losers, like that they will not actually be effective vaccines. Is this the is is that the the nubbin of the truth we need to take from from where we found ourselves? You know, a little bit surprised and taken aback by by COVID nineteen. Should is the right response to now start really investing in vaccine infrastructure, whether we have the the right formulation today or not? The short answer is I don't know. Um, I think it's tempting, uh, and there's a you know a whole, whole bunch of other lessons lessons for self sufficiency um, and personal protective equipment and uh, stocks of drugs that are relevant to an outbreak. I mean, stocks of uh, ventilators, etc. I mean, we're we're all learning those lessons about a world in which. Uh, Globalization has receded and populism and nationalism have run rampant. So I think there's a lot of things to learn. I would hope 
that if it's not around vaccines, there is at least some similar coalescence of sentiment and thinking about how we can better prepare as a global community for further outbreaks. It may be vaccines, it may be antivirals, it may be you know, fluid pools of protective personal equipment that can be shared. Um, it may be that we have you know, a much more mobile workforce, people who are skilled in outbreak response and countries help each other. Just as we're seeing, you know, preparations for there to be interprovincial movement of professionals. If one province gets into trouble in Canada, that's a lovely thing that's happened. So I can imagine a more globalized response, Jody. Um, you know, here at home, if I can be a little heretical, I saw some complaints that some of the income mitigation, income loss mitigation measures were heading towards being a sort of universal minimum or basic income. And people were disturbed by that. You wanted me to think about something that would be actually very positive coming out of COVID-19. Probably the single best thing we could do to improve the social determinants of health would be a universal basic income for Canadians. So some of what we're actually hearing criticism of and directionally of the measures adopted would actually be something we actually should embrace for the long haul, in my view, if we wanted to make a dent in health and well-being. Uh, here in Canada. So measures at home, measures at abroad, a different ethos. Uh, I think we all hope that happens. Um, but as I said, beware the inertial forces. They're very strong and the compass tends to swing back to the status quo. Thank you, David Naylor. Thank you so much. This was such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate all of your insights during what has to be a very busy time for you. My pleasure, Jody. Always good to chat.